Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three planks to our writing manifesto. One to help you write more, two to help you write better and three to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. To that end I get authors onto the show and other people involved in the business of making stories and making things happen with words and I talk to them about how they do it. Sometimes I talk about how I do it myself. Sometimes I get listeners to send in their first page of their novel or story and I suggest ways they might make it better. And sometimes I offer little workshops or even whole writing courses that allow you to work through your own work and find some things that you can write about and make words work. And all those. I'm really excited today because, God, that was a little bit, that was a, was a little bit too full on for an opening. I, When I'm talking about words and I become inarticulate, then... I kind of feel like the uh, Ouroboros is eating its own tail then when, look, I'm excited for many reasons, but today I'm super excited because I had um, the poet, uh, writer and journalist uh, Musa Rakonga on the show and I chatted to him and really, if I'm honest... I had two central reasons I wanted to ask him on the show. I've wanted to ask him for ages and I finally was like, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? I'd been kind of, because I, I didn't know if he'd say yes and he did. And I, so I was thrilled, but I, I'd been sort of like tiptoeing around it for ages. But one, I just have always, in whenever I've done gigs and uh, I first met, met Musa when we were on the poetry scene, just every time I was doing a gig where he was one of the other poets on the bill and I just got a chance to chat with him before the gig, just always, it was just always a really wonderful conversationist. I always felt pleased as soon as I saw him. I'd like, he's just one of those people, like, I'd, I'd light up, I'd be like, great. And just whatever I, I talked to him about, I constantly <laughs> was really enjoying the conversation and just felt like I learned something. I was, I was like, wow, cool. Oh, wow, that's a really great. And so I just, one, I just wanted a chat from a purely selfish point of view. Of, I just really enjoyed talking to him and I've not had a chance to do it. And, and the other one was that I wanted uh, that I wanted to catch up as well because I haven't, because I, you know, neither of us are in the poetry scene anymore. He's someone who I haven't seen for a while. And so... Those two, but he's got several books coming out this year, and so although I never really get people on in the sense of kind of like come on and promote your stuff, um, it was great to have a kind of excuse where I can see (laughs) where I didn't seem too much like I was going. I just want to hang out with you because you're a really fantastic guy. I could at least kind of like clothe it in the. Do you want to come on and talk about? your new book in the end it was all about love which is out from it came out last month from rough trade books and i'll put a link in the show notes to today's episode if you want to pick yourself up a copy i really recommend it and that's the book that we end up sort of immediately jumping into the conversation talking about uh it's a a mix of kind of memoir mixed with there's some poetry at the beginning, which makes it sound sort of more complicated to read than it is. Is it shifts between different forms, and there's 
some kind of, I guess, magical realism in it or, you know, metaphor on steroids. But nonetheless, actually, it's really direct. I found it immediately engaging. And we talk about that. And uh, But it draws on quite, you know, it draws quite heavily on Moose's own life, his move to Berlin. He used to live in Britain, talking about his experience of being an immigrant in different countries, him talking about um, his father, his experience of his, his dad dying in uh, Uganda when uh, Musa was still very young and him becoming how, how that feels. Um, this was his dad died uh, during the civil war in Uganda, having gone back there, having returned to fight. Uh, and so we talk about the book, we talk about form, I talk, we talk about the practice of writing non-fiction, doing it well. You know, I wanted to talk to Musa about how he does it, you know, how he writes, writes persuasive pieces, um, because he's written, he, he writes a lot of, he writes some polit- he's an incredible range, actually. He writes political stuff. He also writes really, really, really well and compellingly about football. I've been to football matches. My dad's a big football fan. I'm not. It's not that I hate it. I just have never connected with it in the same way. And yet when I've read Moose's pieces on it, I feel like I get why people love the sport. And I think that's an incredible talent to be able to take something that you're kind of deeply into and just convey that to anyone, to make it accessible, to invite people in. That's the power of language. That's the, you know, to me, that's part of the point of being able to write about stuff as opposed to just watching it right what value are you adding well sometimes you can kind of go super inside baseball and you can analyze and you can really speak to the insiders and sometimes you can allow other people in and give them a a shared language and give them an entry point and this is amazing at doing both things and so we kind of talk about that as well like how do you write about not just football but the art of persuasive writing, the art of good non-fiction, the art of good journalism. We talk about that. We talk a bit about poetry. Kind of go all over the place, really. I, I, I got, I, I just, what I knew, I wanted to talk about about Doom at some point because I, I know I've had chats with Musa before about hip-hop and where we've just been tra- trading our favourite bars and someone, we remind each other of them and um, I remember last last time I did a gig with him, we were just talking about Big L for ages before the gig. And so I, I kind of crowbarred that in. Um, it was just great. It was just a real treat for me. And it's just nice to chat to people. And I was so thrilled he wanted to be on the show. And I think also like Musa is wonderfully um, unencumbered by the kind of neuroses that I reflexively perform whenever I'm talking about work and uh, uh, kind of apologising and being falsely modest and self-deprecating. Musa is really generous about other people's work and has a really healthy relationship with his own as well, which I think is so rare to see in people and fun and just just great. It's really refreshing. Um, And so I I just, I I can't, I'm only going to mess this up if I keep talking about it um, because you just have to listen to it yourself. But I was really thrilled 
to speak to him after so long and um like i say there's i'll put links to um his books and his twitter in the uh, show notes of today's episode if you enjoy the show and you'd like to support it i've got a coffee page ko-fi.com forward slash tim clare you can go there and drop me a few beans which helps me keep the lights on and if you want to get in touch and let me know how you're doing let me know how what you think of episodes suggest guests for future ones whatever then you can go on my website timclairpart.co.uk there's a little button that says contact me you can use that to contact me let me know how you're doing i love hearing from you i get emails literally it's now i'm just used to the fact i get messages from listeners every single day of the week that's my life now isn't that fantastic thank you for them i read them all uh, and even if I don't, not able to answer every single one, uh, I say not able, um, probably not willing is more. I could, I could if I cut out my job and sleep and parenting, but um, I'm, I do read them all and I do act on a lot of them. And I do take them on board and I do enjoy uh, most of them, apart from the occasional peculiar one, but that's very rare. Um, so without further ado and genuinely without further ado i hope you enjoyed today's chat it's me talking to the writer musa akwanga musa maybe like this sort of definitional definitional question is a little bit um might be a little bit grisly to start off with but i was just you were talking then about kind of like getting there and i i i, I wondered i've heard you describe yourself at, various stages as a poet as a writer and as a as a pundit as well which i and i i'm really really interested in those different yeah i mean and those roles unfortunately yeah unfortunately that we're nothing what i realized of course is what you call yourself obviously it matters for you but there's the way the world receives you as well and sometimes it doesn't um the reason I would describe myself as a poet first for years is because that's who I felt, but also there was an element of this is who I am at bottom. I do other things, but I'm a poet first and foremost. Now, the funny thing with that is a lot of people don't respect that. They just don't respect it. And I don't think it's mocked now because I've done enough work and got enough like, you know, work out the door that people respect that it's okay. But I think there's a lot of people that just don't, still don't respect those roles particularly the first two particularly poetry and journalism um and when i say finally got here i feel like i'm making exactly i've always made mostly the work i want to make but now i'm making exactly the work i make like every single word that i write now is a piece of work that i want to produce and it has you know any writer listening to this knows and like yourself it takes a very long time to get to that place a very long time but yeah finally here so it's all good can you t- can you talk about like how you like how where where was where did you begin in terms of like i often like one of my kind of like classic starter questions is like what was the first story uh you remember hearing but like i just like when all i suppose the connecting thing with all of those different things is kind of like yeah. there's a lovely line in jay-z's decoded where he defines poetry as 
a poet makes words work harder than they usually do. And I was like, oh, thank God someone's just said it in a way that I could... I don't, we don't have to argue about the definition. I'm fine, right? We can all go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I was wondering if you could talk about when you first started to get a sense that you were someone who could make words work a bit harder than they normally do. This is such a, you know, this is such a strange thing because first of all, Jay-Z's a funny one because Jay-Z, it's funny Jay-Z used to say that. I know what he means because, but at the same time, Jay-Z's words don't seem to be working hard at all, right? And maybe that's what he's saying, like hard writing makes good reading because Jay-Z, what he accomplishes. So it's funny you start you mentioned because his ability to create imagery is simply astonishing. It's simply astonishing. Jay-Z would never say, I went to a funeral. He would say, all your crew are now in hard bottoms. <laughs> he'd never say, yeah, he, he, he'd never say that. And when I first understood I could make words work harder, um, it's weird though, isn't it? Because it's so subjective because actually you don't know if you're any good as a writer until a critical mass of people start going, actually, you could do this. So I can't remember a specific time. The only time I can really think of is um, I, wrote a po I wrote a poem called Seeing Red when I was at Langley Manor School. And I wrote it in like this well, nice italic, you know, shape of pen with the black ink. And I meant a poem called Seeing Red and all the lines were rhyming. And then I wrote another story about, um, it was like a family of criminals, a family of criminals who didn't know they were all related to each other until they pulled a particular job. And they only realized then, there were like a crew of guys on, on, the, on the, and they were all cousins or brothers as it turned out. And they didn't realize until they'd been assembled to pull this job this bank job. And those were the first two stories I remember writing. And I was like, I think like 10, about 10 years old. Wow. At point. <laughs> oh, nice. You were writing heists at 10. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's yeah. amazing. That's actually quite revealing, I think. Yeah, that's quite revealing. Wow. Okay. But yeah, no one really knows that story, but that's true. That's the first, those are the first two stories. One was about anger and one was about a heist. So yeah, <laughs> a family of criminals. I know what you mean about like I'm thinking about when you talk about uh, Jay Z and, and 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 there's a there's that ability to make to uh, be I guess deceptively simple, right? With yes, language yes, yes. and that ability to yeah. choose the right word rather than the biggest word, and to you uh, let space do work. Um, because right, right. I, I I mean I guess like the first time. I we I saw you perform would have been and I I apologize in advance for um uh, uh, bringing this up because I know you know like when whenever I talk about people's like classic poems that they used to the to do so often poets have like mixed feelings because like they're like oh yeah that's my signature piece or whatever but it would have been you doing um doing Cooper for like the for I I remember seeing oh, right seeing you do that car must be like 14 years was it be 14 years ago now yeah that's 2007 yeah that's 2007 yeah. that's right that's it yeah yeah that's Yikes, wild time moves time moves fast eh and and so I, yeah. I remember seeing you do a big narrative piece but again it was a piece that doesn't uh you know that actually the language in the poem that i first saw, so you do is like you know it's a personal piece but the language is actually simple almost like conversational and yeah, that's it's an obsession the beats of, mine. of it yeah, are simple, the, what, yeah. 
And could you talk a little bit about how you maybe the the art of that about make you know bringing stuff out without you know having these vast kind of like complex lyrical flourishes absolutely my obsession is that i'm I'm so glad you see that because my obsession is keep things simple and not basic you've got to keep the writing simple almost to the point of banality but not quite right because most people in our world are busy they've got other responsibilities other things going on they've got a thousand things going on in the world other than listening to you and reading your work so there's a lot of competition for their attention so what cuts through simplicity tends to cut through more often than not also most people who will engage with your work don't speak english as a first language right um and they won't have had the level of formal education that you've had so there's a whole load of esoterica that stands between you if you fully indulge yourself as a writer there's a whole load of barriers that stand between you and the person engaging your work so the job is to strip away all that work to regard your reader your audience as intelligent but not to patronize them right so that's what my philosophy in writing comes from. This philosophy sounds dramatic, but that is what it is. It's a philosophy. It's like, so when you start, um, for example, I'm writing an essay right now, just before you got in touch, I was working on an essay about Pele and about Pele's greatness. And when I open an essay, it's like the most important line of any, or the second most important line is the opening line. The most important line is a closing line. And the opening line just gets people involved, gets them in, get, hooks them. So um, I think the opening line is something like, being immortal is hard work. Ha. And the point being, but you know what I mean? Like, that's it, right? Being immortal is hard work because you're a footballing legend. Everyone assumes, oh, you're a legend. No, like you've got to wake up every morning ready to be God. Because everyone's going to be like, oh, I'm going to meet God today. God's going to sign a book for me. God's going to do a football trick for me. God's going to like, oh. And then there's all these other gods going, oh, but I'm a God too. Like, he was a God back then, but 50 years later, Pele was around then, but I'm a God now. So I'm better than Pele. So like, Pele's almost like Zeus trying to like fight people off uh, Mount Olympus with a pitchfork, right? Like, get off my mountain. Like, I'm God. I'm the God here. So that's where you start. You start with a simple opening line and then you just travel there and you build, you just keep riffing on that one opening line. How do you... This is so... Mostly this is, I'm so glad you brought this up because this is like... When I think about things that I'm passionate about, my yeah, yeah. biggest fear... Yeah, and I think borne out quite a lot of the time by when I start talking to people about something I'm my latest squeeze, like my latest thing I'm passionate about, and I see the will to live slowly drain from their eyes, right? Because I'm yeah. geeking out in a way that is not, but there's no way in for them, right? I'm talking to them right, about right. the thing, but I'm yeah. hyper inside baseball, you know, like I'm talking yeah. about, I'm using jargon, I'm leaving them way behind. And yet whenever I've talked, heard you, I've read your essays about football, whenever I've heard you talk about it, even though I've been to some football matches, you know, my dad, you know, big Southampton supporter, and so I went to a lot of games awesome. with him. Yeah. Um, but I've never been really known what I'm talking about. I've never really followed what's going going on very much and and yet when i hear you talk about it i'm like i can understand why you're enthusiastic about it but in the best way when you hear somebody who's enthusiastic about an area talk about it i feel taken along with you and i understand and i feel empowered by the metaphors and i wonder if you could talk about that ability to talk how you go about talking about something you're enthusiastic about while making while inviting the reader in because when you use that metaphor then i'm immediately like i understand the narrative and why we should oh, care i'm so glad to hear that because that, that that to me is the biggest compliment because for me it's all about it's all storytelling right it's all storytelling and anthropology so 
you start the universe, a proposition as universal as possible. Like, you know, being immortal is hard work. You're like, what? You're immortal? Like, how is that hard? You're like, oh, actually living forever. Okay, so people are already thinking, yeah, actually living forever, that sounds like a tough gig. Like your mates die and then like new legends come along and you got, you're not your best, you got to find. So you, the trick is um, everything is storytelling, everything's anthropological. So it's like, imagine you're writing a movie for an entire family, right? Like I'm writing a children's book right now, a children's football book. And what is the book gonna be about? If people who don't like football wanna pick up that book, I'm like, well, people can't necessarily, don't necessarily understand football. What they do understand is the moment coming and going, losing opportunity. There's a lot of people who never understand football, never get excited by it. But if you say to them, the reason I love football, it's a bit like, mum, when, like when you met dad and you went to the train station to meet, to meet somebody else and there was a man getting on the train, you helped him with his bag and because you helped him, he was like, oh, how lovely. I'm in town next week, go for a coffee. And if you just hadn't done that thing, you wouldn't have been with dad now and I wouldn't exist. And football is about that. Football is about the chances you, you take or you don't take. Football is about being on that train platform and deciding not to help that person with their bag or helping them. Silly example, but like football, the reason it allures me football is because it's full of moments that you can't get back. It's full of moments to prove you're ready or you're not. And it's like that with music or with like notes or whatever. And so I always try and take, if I'm talking to an audience, let's say they're mainly musicians, I will describe football using analogies from music. Or if they're, you know, it's like anything, like, like, like if I'm teaching in schools, I will use things that relate to a child's experience. And it's why when I write my books, I don't use references to sponsors or brands or companies. I don't, I don't mention years very much because every time you mention a year, you date it. Every time you mention a brand, you date it. So it's, it's almost like, to be honest with you, <laughs> it sounds quite weird here, but see the Old Testament, right? Yeah. The Old Testament basically it's timeless for a reason, right? It's timeless because those stories could have occurred at any point in a kind of few thousand year window. Now, whoever crafted those stories was probably thinking of that actually, because they're really universal. They're really simple, really basic. So again, this is my obsession. Like if you're gonna draw analogies to other art forms, keep them as broad as possible. So it's why I, ref I reference Marvel movies very often, Star Wars, because people, generally speaking, even if they don't know or have watched it, they're aware of the cultural significance of these things. So this is a sorry long answer to a short question, but I think about this stuff a lot. No, I it's, think about this stuff a lot. That's yeah. no, but this is like what I. This is because it's that ability to say when you talked about kind of like creating chances and stuff. It's it's yes. It's so. I think often like when we really love something, it's so much a piece of our life that actually yeah. it takes a little while to step back and go, why why do why? I like yeah. this? Yeah. You know, when I think about board games and stuff and someone goes, why do you enjoy this game? And I, I and I have to step back and look, I look at, you know, I'm playing you know, a game like Power Grid or something. And I look at what the game's about. And it's about creating the most efficient energy infrastructure in Germany. And I'm like, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like fun even to me. Right. And so yeah. I've actually got to stop and think about my history with games and what's happening what the kind of social transactions are and what the narrative that it gets created and, and and you know why do i care about this and it sounds like you've had to go through that process with all the time. football all the time yeah all the time but people say to me like you know why 
if I have, for example, friends who are massive fans of classical music and they say, like, why do you love football? I will say, in fact, this is an example I used a few months ago to a friend of the massive fan of classical. I said, imagine going to the Royal Festival Hall and watching Beethoven writing sheet music in real time and then handing out the orchestra and then playing each page just before he's writing the next one. That's why I love football. That's what Leo Messi does. Every time Leo Messi plays football, Barcelona turn up in the camp now and he hasn't written any sheet music and he's like, he's writing in real time and handing it out. That is, and they're like, oh, I said, yeah, that's why I'm obsessed with it. That's because it's, that's amazing. Sorry, sorry. No, I was going to say that's like, I, but the, the real key part of that answer, I just want to say, you want to zero in, is that moment where you imagine your friend saying, oh, because that's a moment of revelation where they've learned something and, and it's almost like you're giving us the chance to practice. It's a weird, weird situation to use the term empathy, but like, yes, but it's, you know yes, what I mean? It's like, that, it's, that, it's like, oh, it's, because it's also it's something about being seen. Like when you're saying, I've taken the trouble to put that in a way that you can see, they're like, oh, they're almost, there's almost a kind of like, the revelation is not just, that's it, but it's also like, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for making it feel as if like, this is just an, ex like, we're all part of the human comedy. We're all part of the kind of tapestry of art. And oh, that belongs there. So I've had conversations with people like, oh my God, football's not an art. Football's like, well, okay, look, I don't, I'm not gonna try and make you think that it is. I would just say that I would consider it is art because of this. Like, you know, the architecture of football, like the construction of patterns, the bit, all of that, the craft of it. Like, for example, someone said to me, like, you know, how would you compare that midfielder playing? I said, well, imagine being an air traffic controller, right? That's what it's like. like. It's no different. All the flights are coming and going. And you're standing in the middle, but you're not only the air traffic controller, you're also one of the planes. Because hmm. you have to move as well as coordinate people. Then they're like, oh, I said, yeah, that's what it's like. So really, like, I mean, I suppose the bulk of my work is making analogies, actually, if I think about it. It's, it's reducing things to places where people understand as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's... And of course, this is all stuff that you do. You, I suppose, in a way, you're distilling the work that you've done abstractly, just turning yeah. up and watching games, right? These are like r revelations that have partly come from other comment, com people commentating and things people have said and, 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 and conversations you have in the pub where someone makes an analogy and you go, oh, I do see it like that. But also, this is just like a slower crawl and you're kind of like hyper consolidating that so people can yes. kind of get to where you are a bit quicker yes of course exactly it's all about reducing the barriers to entry like every piece of work that i do is about democratizing entry. so for example the book i just wrote about berlin this book is super short why is it short because people are busy right people are traveling well not at the moment but this book was at the time people traveling around so i thought to myself this book i don't want this book to be any hassle if you're going on holiday i want this book to be short enough that you can think, I'll take that with me. It's short enough, small enough. I'll put that in my inside pocket, put it in my back pocket. I'll crease it a bit, take it to the youth hostel. Like my dream is for this book to be abandoned in a youth hostel because mm. that will mean it's taken to a place of comfort where someone feels it's accompanied them. So each, most of the chapters in that book are on average 400, well, they're on average, the chapter's like 400 words long. They're super short. They're almost paragraphs. Like, because again, I want to meet people where they are. Life is too short for people to be clogged down, bogged down in, in esoterica. Like if, if, if you're trying to convey a certain message, I'm not saying I'm against people writing complex work. Of course I'm not. I'm saying that complexity for its own sake, I absolutely abhor that. 
Can we? Can we? I don't. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. go. Yeah. After, after you, no, Musa. No, go sorry. For, go for, no, well, go, I was just going to say, let's go, jump. Go. Let's. I'd really like to jump into this because I've. I, I'm especially really interested in this because I've, you know, just been reading it and. Um, yeah. Sure. Sure. I, I, I'd love to, you to talk maybe a bit about how you came to write. I guess it, it, I'm always like a bit unsure about um, technical terms. It's not. It's not a novella, is it? Because it's non-fiction. It's kind of memoir, but it's like a kind of novella length memoir well the thing is yeah but the weird thing is it's kind of i would call it a tall tale because a lot of it is absolutely true and a lot of it is as you'll see later on or whatever it's it's, it's magic realism and the magic realism is foreshadowed with each poem in each section so the po each each part starts with a poem which looks at magic which has a magic realist mm. lens and then the magic realism comes in at different points and then there's a moment where it's really all there and you're like okay that's definitely fiction and then the fiction, then the non-fiction resumes, and then like, so it's a kind of it's a tall tale because a lot of that book happened, and some of it absolutely did not happen, and the only character it, that I has think, a name in the book is fictional. So there's yeah, sorry yeah. Okay, no, I okay, that's really so. What's no, really fine. interesting for me is like yeah. the kind of no, I guess like this is this idea of like genre and normative lenses that like right, often of course, when we're yeah, reading yeah. something and we have a set of expectations. Um, so when I, you know, wrote my fantasy book, a lot of people got to the fantasy part and then managed to create explanations why what they were reading, it was still, it was still, uh, I guess, realist literary fiction. The character is hallucinating. This is a dream. Yes, this yes. is like a metaphor on steroids. And I'm realizing as I was reading your work, I was like, I think, you know, I was like, oh, this is this is a metaphor. And so actually what I'm reading is still... I'm still reading memoir because this is kind of like a, this is yeah. take, but in a sense, that was me trying to hold on to a certain preconception yeah. genre that I went in when I, when I went into it. Well, this book actually had a challenge to be sold even because people were like, is it a novel? Is it a novella? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Is it too short? Is it too this? And they were like, oh, we can't. We can't. And Rough Trade, because Rough Trade loved that. Rough Trade were like, Shout out to Nina at Rough Trade and Will Burns, uh, Nina Hervé and Will Burns. They were they were like all over it immediately. They were like, we love it. But no one else really knew what to do with it. Like no one else knew what to do with it because it was like, what genre is it? And I was like, it's just a book. It's a book that you write. And this is the thing, I, I don't, you don't, when you're writing a book, you work on the book first and then all other stuff gets added later, the marketing and whatever people call it. But for me, it was more like, I said this to a few people, but, I wanted to write a book that was like, you know that, that, that chocolate, the dark chocolate, 70% proof? Yeah. The really bitter stuff. You can only eat like a... I wanted the book to be like that. So I wanted to write it with a certain intensity. So every single part of the book, every single paragraph is written with pretty much the same degree of intensity, written at the same kind of time of day in most cases. So written at like sort of, I set my alarm for 6.20, at my desk with a black coffee and a bottle of water, ready to write at 6.30, 6.30 start writing, write till about 9 a.m. And so I write for two and a half hours with high intensity, right? Because that's the time of morning when like, you know, everything percolates overnight. So by the time you're writing in the morning, everything's fresh. You're just drawing off the top. And the second you feel yourself losing intensity, you stop writing. Go off and do something else. Maybe do a bit of work in the afternoon and carry on. So every piece of the work is highly, highly compacted, right? Now, every, the, I didn't write everything in the same order. I wrote the fragments then rearrange some of them. And uh, Fernando Pessoa does this in the uh, Book of Disquiet. 
Uh, and Tejo Cole has a similar narrative style in Every Day is for the Thief. This is a fragmented narrative slash memoir slash magic realism. And I thought, I really like that form. I didn't know until I was somewhere into the book that, that was a form that would be actually viable in any sense. Although it took a year to sell this book. That's another story. Um, but I also thought the idea of like beginning each section with a poem would be like, I want to set the tone. So whatever comes next, people are like, ah, oh, we know what to expect. Like you, each of the parts, what I'm so proud of is each of the parts absolutely foreshadows what comes in each of the, um, each of the poems or each of the, each of the, each of the, sorry, each of the poems absolutely foreshadows what comes in each of the parts. You had, you open it with the right at the beginning, you say like, this is a book in three, three parts. The first yeah. part is in Berlin. And honestly, when I was reading it and I, you just like had that little bit of explanation at the beginning, I honestly, I honestly, like, I broke out in such a big grin, Musa. And I look, I, it takes quite a lot for me to, have you ever had it where you're like reading something and you, or you're listening to a podcast and you, maybe you're in a coffee shop. I know you don't sort of don't get to do that so much anymore, but you kind of look up to like look around to see if there's anyone else who's like are you get are you <laughs> getting this like i was like oh you're allowed to do that you're allowed i felt like what you're saying about you're not sure about you know what kind of genre it is well those are sometimes the most exciting books for me to read because they're like permission books to me i always think yeah, of them, yeah where yeah. i go i genuinely had a few moments when i was reading it where i go oh you're oh you're allowed to do that of course you are <laughs> who's because there is no boss of writing who's gonna fire you right you're allowed Absolutely. to do that. And actually a lot of the things that you do in it are in retrospect, you know, really sen sensible and they're great. And they, they felt like they anchored me as a reader because there are no rules in writing, just norms. But I was reading it yeah. and, and it's like, it's one of those beautiful, there's a couple of beautiful innovations you have it with the poems that lead into each bit that I read and went, I almost want to slap myself on the forehead and go, in retrospect, they seem obvious. You know, you go, of course you can exactly. do this. Yeah. But at the time, it's kind of rule-breaking. And I really, I really enjoy it. I, re I mean, I, is, I'm genuine. I'm not just, I'm not just sort no, of no, saying no, for I the know. sake of it. Yeah. That's a really sincere. I would, I would be much cooler about it if I was lying. I wouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I pre did I love, you know, I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm so, this is so gratifying to hear because this book I made, I took every single creative risk I could take every risk like literally every risk i'd want to take creatively not in terms of self-indulgent but like how can i tell this story and get away with it not to kind of be like oh i want to use this rule or break this rule it's more like the story has a particular narrative now there's a series of fragments that are connected have i got enough is there enough narrative momentum in the fragments to maintain the story that's the challenge because you're like fragment 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 there's no dates there's no names of characters apart from one individual who's named and nobody else's. This is one character who's named in 120 pages. There's all these fragments. How the hell will I actually draw? Oh, so there's one other, it's Muhammad as well. Shout out to Muhammad. But basically it's like, am I going to pull this off? And you don't, you don't know. You don't know. It's like when you play a gig, like you don't know until you play a gig or you read somewhere, or you do a festival, you do a stand up set. You don't know if you're funny until that first anecdote lands. Maybe not even then. Look at The Fast Show, for example. Great example, The Fast Show. Series of sketches, beautifully constructed. First time you watch The Fast Show, you basically don't laugh, right? You're like, what the hell is this? And you're angry at all your mates who told you to watch it, and they're really ashamed, they recommended it to you, and you're like, you spend a week going, well, I did anyway. 
Why did you recommend that to me? I'm really annoyed. Oh, what's this? We sat down, we watched the fast show, and the next week you are howling. And the third week you watch the fast show, you're bending over with laughter because you're just waiting for the joke. You're waiting for the punchline. You're waiting for the setup. And that is the creative risk that I took with this book. It's basically my fast show. It's like, is this going to work? Because you don't know. You just don't know. I, I So come I, I just feel like for listeners like um is have you got like a, i don't want to like reduce um it yeah, to sure, an sure, elevator sure. pitch but um yeah in the end it was all about love is the name of the this book and i was wondering if just because we talked of about course, it in yeah. kind of like these quite esoteric terms but it's yeah, not sure. it, it, I'm, I'm sort of concerned that that would make it sound like it's like this is it's this kind of riddle box that's very very difficult to get into but i just think like sure and i'm, I'm gonna very shamelessly um bring up mf doom here just as an example of someone who does yes. like i guess like those kind of like who has puzzle rhymes that you can go into if you want to but actually you can yes. just kind of sit back and let it wash over you and you don't have to know this reference and this reference but if you want to spend time with it you can tease them out and i just wonder if you've got like how when you're talking to people about it um how have you explained you know what it's yes. about it's a book for anybody who has ever left their hometown and moved somewhere either abroad or to another town in the same country to start a completely new life and for anyone who's realized that when you move away from home to start a new life a lot of the old unresolved issues come with you a lot of the problems come with you so it's for anyone who's ever, ever experienced that. You know, you arrive in a new town, you've got your bags in the hallway and you're like, you don't know anybody. And you're like, I've got to make this work because I'm here. I'm here to improve my life. So for anyone that's ever been in that scenario, this book is, is, for, is for you, basically. It's for them. Um, that's how I explain it in the outline. And a specific thing in terms of the protagonist, you know, based on, on my life to an extent, coming to a point where my dad died. So my dad died... Um, when I was four years old uh, and there came a point where I was approaching the age where he died he died when he was 40 and I was reaching the age of 40 and I was assessing my life going have I done enough to to make him proud am I worthy of my dad which is a thing we all have we all want to play as our parents but how do you please a parent you never knew and how do you deal with reaching the age of 40 feeling like you haven't actually achieved with your life what you should have done given all the things you were given. So that's really what the book is about. The big picture is how do you deal with moving to a new place? And the smaller picture is how did I deal with with who I was in relation to my my father long deceased? It occurred to me when I was reading it, I, th I think there's bits of it that... There's bits of it that are being in lockdown and with the pandemic are just eight achingly poignant i i found myself really drawn in by this this and it sounds like i'm trivializing it and i'm really not but when yes. you do go into detail about um the different cake shops that you might want to yeah play, go One to in berlin chapters. and that is now a freedom that is not available i found that was sort of so shot through with a kind of wistful melancholy and tragedy that i was I was lost in each of these descriptions about the different cakes and the reason that you might go to them. I loved that bit about, you know, why you, you want to go to these, di you want a different cake for sort of different yeah. feelings. 
Yeah, that's that's what well, it's the geography. You know, there's like a psychogeography of cities. That was my kind of like, I don't know, if a culinary geography, but that is one of my favorite chapters in the book because just as the best books about football are not actually about football, they're about the human condition through football. The best writing about cake is not actually about cake. It's about the experience and the kind of like, why you go and sit there and treat yourself. So, and that that to me is one of my favorite chapters. Like it, I love that you picked that out. And I'm love that you feel, because it is wistful. Even when I wrote that before the pandemic, there's going and sitting somewhere and treating yourself to something nice and being like, you did good this year. And it's it's kind of like quite wistful because it's not being able to celebrate celebrate yourself with any kind of extravagance. It's not like I'm going to like, you know, uptown and like having some fancy 50 euro dinner because I have not really been able to afford that for most of my artistic career. And so, yeah, I, I love that you picked up on that. And that's, I think the funny thing is now that because people are in lockdown reading it, I think that it has a higher emotional register than it otherwise would. I think all of the emotional stuff hits people a bit harder, if that makes sense. It, it it does. And of course, like there's the background to the piece that it's about moving somewhere. And to a certain extent that I feel a bit like it's like the contradiction between starting over and realizing that you can never really start over. You know? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. I was watching a sci-fi movie the other day. Was it a sci-fi? I can't remember it was, but there was, this, there was a line when somebody says, Oh, that was it. It was uh, the Expanse, the amazing series, the Expanse on. Uh, Come the series, uh, the channel was on, but um, the Expanse, where there's somebody moving from Baltimore into outer space and starting over, and Amos, one of the main characters, says, "Nobody really starts over." And it was just exactly that, like, which is sad in a way, but also quite uplifting. It's like you know, let's say you work on a couple of novels, then you change genre. You're like, oh my goodness, I've left my fan base in that genre. Actually, you haven't because you don't start over because you're starting at the level of something that's executed a genre so well that you now feel you want to try another one. And that has been incredibly empowering for me, not just as an artist, but as a human being. Like you move to a new city. Oh, how do I make new friends? Of course you will because your social skills are so much more advanced and you haven't lost the old people, right? They're still just a WhatsApp away. And the pandemic's made us realize that. We've got people who are down the road, who's, who may as well be in Colombia for all that you can actually see them. Um, so yeah, I think not starting over is kind of, at first it's a, it sounds like a curse, but it ends up being a really beautiful, positive thing. Like you don't want to start over in a way. Can you, so, yeah. can you talk about the, I guess the, I'm always interested in the kind of psychological side of writing something that is at least part memoir that has a strong yes. that strong uh, energy to it that, that that is drawing deeply from that well you know i've been speaking to uh laura dockrell recently who wrote about wow. her um postpartum psychosis her experience of that and wow. byron vincent talking about his experience of being sectioned as well um amazing writers, and yeah, yeah and amazing. so they've been writing some quite like uh, you know, memoiry stuff, and I just wonder what the impact is of like. And I also had this um, social psychologist James W. Pennebaker, a really amazing guy who's spent sort of twenty five, thirty years looking at the effects of expressive writing on um, people's well being and mm. expressing trauma and giving voice to it. And I wonder if you could talk about because you talk about in the in the in the book you 
right about really there's the emotion is really raw and i just wonder what yeah, the effective yeah. on you was and how you deal with like getting up each morning and going there and then and then yeah. having to be a person like was it was it tough was it helpful um because i know a lot of people sometimes shy away from touching these things because they don't know how to deal with it or whether it's going to be self-indulgent or they're not you know it's a terrifying thing to do and i wondered how you dealt with it that's exactly why i went there first of all that's exactly why i wrote this book because i feel that confession inspires confession i've said this a thousand times like when you write something confessional it it actually it inspires or more accurately or less arrogantly it encourages people to examine themselves um, and in terms of writing it, I think, you know, the key to a lot of that is just counseling or therapy. Like when you're going through these processes, when you're going to therapy and you open up to actually that process as I did, and I opened myself up to it because I was thinking there's nothing dramatically wrong with me at this point, but I need to go and check. And it's a kind of mental health MOT. Let me go. And it's almost like getting your teeth checked before you need any kind of fillings right because then you don't get a root canal check 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 the mental health now before it deteriorates so i went to um counseling or therapy and i was talking to um this counselor amazing human being and the more we talked the more i was like actually i want to write about this to uncover more of it so i'd already processed some of the trauma through the therapy and the final stage of processing was the writing so by the time now people say to me oh my god that's so personal i'm like well that's what you'd expect someone like me to experience because what processing the trauma first through the counseling then through the writing it sandblasts away any shame any shame at all it's gone so there's people oh my god you said this in this book i was like well of course i did because if you put any human being in that set of circumstances that's pretty much how they're going to react and funnily enough what look might look at now is thinking what great coping mechanisms i've developed but not just coping mechanisms but thriving mechanisms to the point where whoa i didn't just survive that i actually emerged like better in, in a kind of emotionally healthier, better able to engage with people, better able to help people, help myself. So yeah, the benefits were astonishing. And <clears throat> even the process of like writing it was partly a kind of a cleansing process. And then seeing it on the page was like, aha, like almost like the alchemy of taking something miserable or a terrible experience and turning it into something which I was artistically proud of. That was magical. And the final stage of that process was receiving the books. And the first night I got my copies of this book, I got like 10 copies of them. I slept with one of them next to my pillow. And I woke up so <laughs> I could look at it and be like, yeah, I was like, wow, this actually exists. I did it. Wow. That's so yeah. cool. Do you, how, do you, I was wondering how you sort of, did, how, did, the, 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 I suppose the only tricky, the, well, not the only tricky thing about writing kind of stuff that's memoir or memoir adjacent is that you then it then starts to feed back into your own life like people read it people meet you or talk to you who first encountered you through your art people maybe who you've written about or written about situations that they know are similar you then have to I was wondering how it then have you felt like it's fed but I'm just thinking like when I did my first book um that was like my memoir and stuff I then I hadn't really thought about how people in my life were going to react until who maybe I'd written about or, you know, we're yeah. going to react until I did it. And then I was like, oh, how, 
how do I feel about this? How do they feel about me writing about them? How does this person who's never met... You know, I met my wife through her... She read my memoir before she'd met me. So then I had this... You have these odd... It kind of starts that's feeding back into your life. That's an amazing filter. Amazed. Well, to be honest, that's a kind of perfect day. That's basically like your wife basically used Tinder before it existed. <laughs> She's like... <laughs> it's actually... <laughs> you vetted yourself. It's actually quite lovely. There's, a, there's an amazing sample of it working well. And I think... Do you know what it is? I think um, it's so funny you say that. I haven't encountered that yet because we're still in lockdown, right? So I haven't met anybody, really anyone new that's read this book. Now there's going to be people that read this book and are like, what you're describing, okay, like now I know this guy really, really well, but I don't know. I feel like um, I'm ready for that, I think. I'm ready for that to be a thing I talk about and I'm ready for that to be known. And I think the crucial thing with this book is I don't betray anyone's confidences. Even people that like kind of did me wrong, none of their names are there. There's no identifying characteristics. People know who those people were. There's no way they'll be identified. And that's deliberate. That's an act of care because our stories are, you know, your and mine, there are stories to be told, but a lot of stories are not asked to be told. So I've written another memoir about being at boarding school. Again, there's no names in there because my argument there is we were kids then. And now no matter what you've gone on to become, I'm judging myself through a 40 year old's eyes but you haven't stepped yourself to that process so that's not fair on you so there's always a care there there's always a kind of um a gentleness and i think that if you approach your memoir or your work with a certain form of gentleness people respect you gently in turn so the response to this book has been very gentle it's been like oh like there's some quite harrowing stuff in here yeah there is but this person this person has treated the people involved with care if that makes sense um, yeah, so, it yeah. Do, yeah, it it does. It def that definitely comes across. I was well, you, you know, Musa, like it, it struck me when I was reading this, and I, I I think back to the sort of when I first saw you as a, a poet, and all the way up to now, and the, your ability to be vulnerable on stage and in your work, and your ability to say things simply, I think it's like stands in uh, contrast. You know, like, I've often like obfuscated. Um, use lots of complicated things. I use fantasy and metaphor, use lots of jokes and toilet humour as really like to do anything but um, directly say, this is how I'm feeling, you know, to go, I'm not okay. You know, to be able to say, state that very starkly is something that you're able, you're able to sort of stand and sort of turn towards the storm, so to speak. And I wondered like how you, how you got there and how you worked up the courage to do that or whether it's just something that came you know you came to completely naturally and you never thought that there was yeah. another way of approaching it i just i didn't you know what it was it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say but i well first of all it's the most deaf thing the first cut must be the deepest right that was most deaf said that straight it was like you've got to if you're going to say something you know you've got to do it do it now go straight in and so i didn't want to talk around it because we, you know, life is short. We haven't got time to, to waste, really. The other thing was like, it's like a self-awareness that developed from an early age. So this sounds like a really um, self-righteous example, but I've started, so I'll finish. I remember years ago when I was walking down the hill back to my road, the cul-de-sac where I lived back in, um, shout out to West Drayton where I grew up, back in West Drayton, walking down the hill towards my road, 
And I used to litter, right? I used to drop like handkerchiefs on the ground. I used to drop like crisp packets. You know, I eat something, drop it. I used to do that, right? Even though, never, I've never been told not to litter, but I've never been told to litter. Like never. So I was kind of like a bit, I was a bit scrappy or whatever. And I remember walking down the, down the hill to my um, house and I had like a wrapper, an ice cream wrapper and I dropped it. No, it was a plastic bag, a plastic bag and I dropped it. And I suddenly thought, hang on a minute. If everyone drops a plastic bag, what does the pile look like? And I just imagined, I just envisioned like a million plastic bags on top of each other and like this huge, vast, and I was like, oh my God. And I just went and picked it up. And that was the last time I ever dropped anything. I've never lifted anything in the last, I haven't lifted for like 30, 30 something years. And that was it. That was the day that I kind of was like, that's how you cut through. You've got to stand up. And that sounds like a stupid example, but that was really the beginning of, I think, looking back at, everyone has to nudge a bit in the direction of what is better. And that's why, and then over time that sharpened to, no, that's not right. No, and then that, that, sent, that nagging sense of something is not right kept growing exponentially to the point where now I just say stuff because we haven't got time to waste. We've got, you know, we've got a government behaving the way it's behaving in the UK. We've got like a far right, which is doing certain things. We've got like melting ice. We've got all these things. It's like, I don't have time for you not to understand exactly what I'm saying. There's a lot of, my, and I'm not even knocking people that do stuff by analogy just before I, just before I forget. Because actually, analogy is essential and we might argue it's even more important. Political allegory right now and the time we're living and the time we're going towards will be hugely important once again. Like more important than it's been in the previous 10 years. So yeah, but that's where I am for now with my, here ends the lesson. Yeah, I wonder, can you think of any, have you had any sort of, uh role models or um people who served as like examples of that like in any medium that you went you, because you're saying that you, you said um c confession uh sort of uh leads to confession right and i guess that yeah. might be true with quite a lot of these uh modeling kind of positive things that you're talking about and i, I wonder if there's any other artists that you heard exemplifying elements of this that you were like oh like that's the juice that's the that's the kind of that's the kind of energy I want to embody. That's yeah. the kind of practice I'd like to push for. Well, yes, yeah, so the best artists are always the bravest, right? So whatever you're doing, the bravest people in each field are my heroes. So you have like Ida B. Wells, incredible investigative journalist who investigated lynching in the South. The history of did the first ever history of lynching in America, and she went down to the South with a pistol in her handbag and just a lot of resilience. And she came and just her research changed the world. You got like obviously James Baldwin, astonishing, just his prose, his what I call his uh moral fury. Moral fury, like being so angry, but managed to distill that anger into a form where it just was like sheet metal. It was just it was as clean and pure and yeah, it's like sheet metal. And then obviously you've got like K Tempest of our generation, just someone who is so raw, but synthesizes raw emotion to something spectacular. Um, you know, Andre 3000 in hip hop, for example, someone who's unafraid to just be different and out there and is unafraid to leap ahead of the field and wait for the field to catch them up to the point where, you know how it is, you've taken creative risks. And the thing I love about your Death by a Thousand Cuts podcast is like, you are brave, Tim. Like you're, the reason why, when you asked me, can I talk to you? I was like, dude, of course, like my respect for your craft is like, the way you break stuff down, the way you're so unafraid to 
chop things up and be open. Like you're online, I'm struggling right now with certain things. Just in you know, my own world, I'm struggling. I'm in a step. This man is brave. This man like lives it and is actually so committed to it. And it's like, there's a thing I, there's a thing I remember you doing before I knew you wrote um, fiction. You were like mostly doing poetry back then, right? Yeah. And there's a thing you would do with your hands. It's like a Tim Clare hand movement. You'd be almost like, I don't know if you know you do this, but you do the thing with your hands. Almost like, certainly not. You're, tr you're trying to work out and it's like you're, it's like you're fiddling with the air like a Rubik's cube and you're trying to work out a point. It's like, I'm like, I do that the whole time in the street. I'm walking down the street, like today on the way to the um, baker's and I'm, I'm, I've got my hand like this, like I've got a notepad, I'm just going like, because I'm sketching out something and I'm like, I, like, I get this man. I yeah. understand him. <laughs> I, I only notice it when I'm, doing any kind of writing where I've got a group of writers together and then suddenly I'll, I'll catch myself sort of, yeah, just making yes, sort of shadow boxing while I'm writing. Yeah. Ross Sutherland does it as well. Ross does it too. Like there's a couple of you that do this thing where you're like, just, you're just, it's like a uh, magneto, only it's like, you're trying to manipulate words. <laughs> <isn't it? laughs> uh, yeah, I, re I really think so. And, and, and because I guess like we come to so much of this, we build up our ability to do it in a room on our own, right? And then you step yes. out and uh, you, it's only then that you kind of realise you've, you've often created these very, as much as we kind of like learn from our peers loads and of course we're influenced and we're constantly like absorbing more stuff. Actually, a lot of it, we create these very idiosyncratic ways of working that you only kind of when yes, you come out yes. in the cave that you go, oh, <laughs> I mean, that's really weird. Yeah, exactly. The other day, a friend of mine was like, yeah, Musa, you're quite eccentric. And I'm like, what? Like, because I don't spend any time observing myself, so I, I don't notice it. But there's a thing that I often do, for example, when I'm approaching the end of a story or a poem, I'll walk in the street and I'll be like, I walk and I'm at, my hands will be, I'll be doing like this with my hands, yeah. like going like this. Because I'm trying to like imagine the final paragraph as I look at it on my page through my screen like this. So I do this a lot. So if I ever, if I ever in the street doing this, it's because I'm finishing a story, be like, ah, he's finishing a story. That's, it sounds like you've got a really visual way of working if you're making a little rectangle to kind of almost yeah. be able to see the, the you know, almost to create a little page. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's so visual. Like, I, I'm obsessed with visuals. I'm on my phone the whole time and I'm always taking pictures of sunsets in Berlin, snow, fields, obviously where I live. Um, I'm, I've got so many photos on my phone and I think it's because I draw so much from that. Like when I'm, this children's novel that I planned out, I'm writing at the moment, it's uh, 24 chapters, three parts, eight chapters in each. And it's here, it's total hero's journey, right? Rise and fall. Rise, um, ascend to a point of hubris. Oh my goodness. And then the hubris brings the person down. Loss of mentor, loss of self, loss of status, all of that. Bang, pure hero's journey. And then each chapter is like 2,000 words, 2,000 words, 2,000 words. Got to get this person from A to B in the 2,000 words. And in between, that's the, that's the bit you play around with, right? But you got the A and you got the B. And that, that is all cinematic. In my head, I'm thinking, if this was a feature film, if this was an animated whatever, what would it, how would it open, how would it close? How would it open, how would it close? Obsessed with the visual stuff. I'm obsessed with it. That sounds really... How are you finding writing? Um, I always like you, you... You know, I had... A, was When I was chatting with, to Laura about this and we, I st we started talking about writing for children and immediately kind of like 
rode that back a bit because we were talking about it like it was sort of discreetly hived off in its own little uh, craft mm. when, of course, the two things will sort of bleed into each other. But uh, how, how have you find, found that kind of like gear shift from kind of like waking up and doing your kind of morning page, pages where you kind of stick a kind of crazy straw into your into the depths of your psyche and uh, to, uh. to like doing something where you're it sounds like the way you talk about it you're approaching it almost like a sonnet or kind of like 16 bars where you've got kind of like a kind of framework and you're working yes, out how yes, you can yes. play within that structure yeah i think with children form is more important i don't know why i just feel i mean i've like yourself i've taught a lot of different ages and i, I taught um i've taught everyone up to 70 i've taught five-year-olds i've taught five-year-olds poetry shout out to overton grange school taught down there so with them i went to school and i took a rubber duck in and i was like we're gonna do some storytelling today they're like okay i said okay we're gonna tell a story i said okay uh here's a duck and i was like what's his name and everyone was like then one person goes peter and i was like where's peter's family and the other person goes oh oh they're they're in they're in another part of the country and Peter's lost them. How's he going to find them? And then we just told a story. Like, and I was like, that's how you build, right? You just scene, 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 scene. Kids scene, are so amazing. Scene, you scene. can almost do like a kind of press conference with them, can't you? And they yes, have got yes. these, that filter isn't there yet. That worry, what if it's not original? What if I get it wrong? That ability to create narrative is... Exactly, exactly. So that's when the children's story is like, okay... Let's say, for example, I wrote a children's novel actually start of um, last year is about uh, Raheem Sterling. And uh, for those who don't, not big football fans, uh, plays in Manchester City, fantastic player. And Raheem Sterling, I was like, okay, the novel, the children's book is got to be, they asked for 12 and a half, that or 12,000 words. I thought, okay, make it bite size because I want to make the children focus on a particular chapter by chapter. So I'll do a 12,000 words. I'll make each chapter like I'll have like 25 chapters and break it down to like a few hundred words each chapter so you're just left with scene 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 because kids like that if you make the book too long some of them will drop off so you want to hold that attention at an optimal level so I chose a kind of few hundred words per chapter it's so bite-sized it's like a bag of popcorn I want to give kids a bag of literary popcorn and this time I've increased the meal, so it's 12,000 words that time, and the, the novel I'm writing this time is 50,000 words. But what have I done? I've gone bite size again, so each chapter's 2,000 words, and each chapter's an entire scene. So one will just be in the barber shop, one will be in a restaurant. There won't be too much transition in each scene. So even though the, the scenes are longer, they get to stay in the place longer. So I think with kids, it's like don't have too many moving parts at once, you know? Because uh, you can get away, like Umberto Eco, Name of the Rose, love that book can't really get away with that at a certain age level but actually you can read eco in your teens because the way he structures it is is magnificent so i think with kids i think form is everything i think that's the key it's the only difference between writing for them and writing for adults yeah and although i would say that all of those tricks still work with adults we, you know like I, my friend just yeah, yeah, yeah. wrote a yeah. my friend gordon who's been on the podcast before and just got to like number one on the uk amazon kindle list Amazing. with like writing a crime novel and he's really gone from just like he, and he just went away and studied the form and really yes, treated yes, yes. it like a kind of 
like architecture, you know, and, and he worked and, is, he, yeah. and he got the beats and he came back to it. And actually, you know, what he's writing is lots of short scenes where there is... Love it. Love a, a, it. Love a, there's a clear dynamic, and between the beginning and the end of the scene, something has changed, and there is uh, stakes within the scene, and you see it in motion, and it doesn't feel formulaic any more than a kind of haiku feels formulaic or a sonnet feels formulaic. Yeah, yes, it's a formula, but it's also like a game, right? And you, I when love you see it, the I game played it. well, you go neat. Yes, yes. Scott Turow wrote *Presumed Innocent*, one of my favourite crime novels. That was a legal thrillers. The craft of that book, the craft of that book. You know, you're, you're there going, mm. you're you're just there reading, going, this is exquisite. This is abs. And I, I'm just like, I love any kind of book. I love any. I will read a leaflet in a, a waiting lounge for the dentist. Like if it's crafted well, I'll read anything. I'm not like a kind of snob. Everything has its value. Even this children's book that I'm writing at the moment, it's a children's book. I'm writing about football, but actually, it's based on. Uh, a scene in war and peace this sounds really pretentious but there's a scene where a major character arrives in the book and in war and peace which i'm still making my way through because frankly most of us are um, (laughs) they they talk about napoleon for hundreds of pages before he actually appears and so they're in this like drawing room and think either moscow or st petersburg talk about napoleon he doesn't appear by the time he appears everyone's cacking themselves so the scene that i write basically i foreshadowed the arrival of this major character war and peace style for two chapters in children's book and then the character appears. So before they even appear, there's this clamour, 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 clamour. Just like that was done. And there's a scene where a kid comes back from running away from home. It's based directly on Prodigal Son. It's based directly on Prodigal Son. To the point where someone even has a line like, um, he was lost and now he is found. Like, literally that. Like, I want all of that. And those Easter eggs are there. And I want people to come up to me like, oh my goodness, that's like the Prodigal Son. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a game. It's the Easter eggs. And, every now and again in certain poems because when, when I first studied poetry like yourself you're like oh my god they can't have intended that and then the more you start writing you're like no it's all deliberate like it's easter egg after easter egg after easter egg yeah yeah it's like that's the I remember I remember like the mind-blowing bit for me was I was there's an there's an mf doom line where he says your boy had drama got him on the mental plane avoided bad karma yes yes and I was like and I, I had, and I, I had like a fridge moment where I was like, it Mental was like plane, late at night. You're yeah. out, you're getting like some cake out the fridge, and I went, and my mind like zoomed back to being around a friend's house, and they had a secondhand copy of the like 1980s Marvel superheroes tabletop pen and paper role playing game, and in that game. There's a mechanic for when you're playing. It's like Dungeons and Dragons, but in the Marvel Universe. And there's a mechanic in that game where, like, supervillains, they don't want supervillains to just be murdering the superheroes. That wouldn't be in flavour with the universe. So it's given an example of Doctor Doom, right? What he'll do is he'll put Spider-Man in a death machine, Doom machine, and then leave him and go away. But... The exception to bad guys or good guys being able to kill each other is if you have a combat on the mental plane, um, yes. you can do. And But if you kill someone in real life, you get what is called, like in the game, bad karma um, to punish you for doing it. And so it's like this deep, deep, deep dive Tiny. that you'd only get if you know, if you play Marvel role-playing game. Like, what? what no <laughs> it's just like what are you doing he, and he was the master of hidden do you know there's a my favorite do i love you mentioned doom because i was i'm a 
huge Doom fan. I was listening to him just this morning. The the track Banish, the Beck remix on the uh, JJ Doom album. Like I'm a huge Doom fan. And there's a lyric where my favorite Doom um, verse of all time is on Raid on the Mad Villain album where he talks about having enough lightning in his flow to electrify the entire trailer. You know that, that the villains were spitting enough lightning to rock shock the boogie down to Brighton. That is, if you've I, been then. to New York <laughs> from, yeah, from, right, from, Brick, from, from the Bronx, he's basically saying, I have enough electricity in my flow to electrify the entire rail line from the top of Manhattan Island to Brooklyn Beach. Right? That's uh, to Brighton Beach. That is a mind-blowing lyric. Like, and when you listen to that, it's weird because every single time I listen to a Doom lyric, it takes me back to an era I never even lived in, which is 1980s New York. You know, what's this? Um, I, I've been, um, the villain's been spin flows since New York taxi cab plates were like ghetto yellow yeah. with broke blue writing. Like, if you, if you know 1980s cabs, that was the design, yellow and blue. And the amount of referencing is... So I'm obsessed with Doom. Doom was literature. Doom was literature as a writer. And this is the thing I aspire to hiding as much work in my work as he does. So in, in my first book, for example, Culture, the foot, this football book, there's a bit where the exact, um, there are characters in that book, friends of mine who passed away, and I wrote entire sections about them. Most people that read that book, when I'm referring to school friends, don't know they've died. And there's a scene that I talk about, a great footballer who I played with, Ollie Broom, who I played with, and there's a scene describing how he used to play football. And people from school that, I, that we know, that who knew Ollie, who were friends of his as I was, they read the book and I didn't tell them it was in there and they just came across it and were like, oh my God, like he's still alive in this work and he always will be alive in this work. Like that stuff like that is an absolute obsession of mine. It's a total obsession. You've, you've talked about football a, f a few times now and I just I feel like I really want to ask this question it might be too broad so I apologise in advance if you just go me so that you just say Tim that's you, I can't answer this but I, I just because I love hearing about people's passions and I just I wonder if you, why why do you love football like what what because you've written about it's... it in so many different forms you know you write non-fiction about it you you write kind of like commentary on it as it's happening but you also your work you work it into your fictional worlds as well and i just wondered yeah, what yeah. is it for you that it allows it to continue to be this source of the inspiration the it's the freedom it's like every new football match is a new story right every new football match is a new story how many games are playing tonight there's like lazio are playing against bayern munich tonight as we record this chelsea are playing at letting of madrid different countries, different contexts, different personalities, different stages of their careers. Like every, every player on that pitch is on some kind of journey. And when I played football, which I don't do anymore that much, when I played football and I used to play as a striker, there was such a freedom in it. It was this weird mix of like intense freedom, but intense responsibility. The responsibility of sitting in the dressing room going, if, we score, if I score today, there's a good chance we'll win and I can make my friends happy, my teammates happy. That's a really exciting responsibility, pressure. I loved that. And then also this moment of freedom. Anyone that's played as a striker playing football, and I, was a, I used to have, I used to be quick at one point, well, reasonably quick. When you go through on goal and it's just you and the goalkeeper and there's that moment where you know you're going to score 
the goalkeeper knows you're going to score. And like, he knows that you know. That moment, that moment is the most beautiful. That is what it feels like when you craft a piece of work. You know when you're writing a speech for a wedding or whatever, an occasion, and there's a moment when you know, like, I've got this. You, I think I've got this. It's that moment of like, yes. And that moment playing football is like, it's not even scoring. It's just before. It's when you know that you're good enough for the moment. There's a challenge there. And you're like, oh my goodness, this challenge is terrifying. But I am sufficient to meet it and overcome it. That is why it is so alluring again and again. It's not only living that as a footballer, but seeing other people live it and overcome it. It, it sounds like what you're talking about is 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 a kind of flow state, right? It's the um, yes. they they oh, I can't remember which psychologist re- uh, described it as the zone of proximal difficulty, but it's like this area wow. that is just that. just it's like it's challenging enough for you to feel like whoa like i am operating at optimal levels but not so much that you just feel like a child lost in a department store right it's that moment never, of like never. i'm yeah, flying yeah, yeah. do you ever watch basketball do you watch yeah yeah i used to i mean i used to watch it all the time i don't very much anymore but when i was sort okay, of like so you 14, know that moment 15, okay perfect this is the what i'm talking about the moment at the top of the jump shot when you release when you release the top of the jump shot and your fingers Roll along the line of the ball. Yeah, when, when you're doing that, kind of putting a bit of backspin the logo, on it, right? Yeah. The logo, yeah, you backspin and you see the logo rotating and you know, like when I was, I used to be quite good at basketball, not at a kind of pro, you know, but at an amateur level, I was a good basketball player. And there was a point where I was good enough at shooting, I wouldn't shoot at the rim, I'd shoot at the base of the net. I'd aim for the base of the net because I'd shoot and the ball would go out of my sight and I'd watch the base of the net because if I shot well enough, it would just drop straight through and there'd be almost no splash. And I would shoot for no splash and that was it. It was like knowing you know, being in that flow state when you're shooting and you're in a good rhythm, your entire body is aligned with your objective. It's so strange to describe it. It's like watching uh, Roger Federer hit a perfect forehand. You know it's a winner before he even hits it because his body just whips through the line of the ball and it's done. Or a golfer, a, golf, you know, a golfer hits a shot and they're watching it and they know before it even lands, they hit it and they're just like, there's that moment they just walk through after it and they're just like, and they're nodding. And they're nodding and they know that and it's, it's a lot of this is sport but it's also literature it's like when you're when i was walking around today and i was like what's the opening line of this essay and i was like ah it's gotta be the immortal then i knew i was like that's the line and now just before i started uh, speaking to you the work was coming quite quickly because it's almost like the rest of the work has written itself at this point it's like you know the shot is good the moment it leaves your hands the moment yes, it leaves exactly, your yes. foot and then you just yes. watch it play out. But you felt yes, exactly. it in yes. your gut before you saw it with your eyes. There's part of you, a kind of, it's that moment of the psychological element of it. Because you know, I've had this with temping bowling as well, where yes, I yes, know exactly, when I'm doing exactly it, I know that I'm going to miss almost before I start my run up. And I know when I'm going to hit almost to start my run up. It's so psychological. Exactly. And it's like that with friendships and relationships even. It's like that with uh, proposals and whatever, the sense of certainty. I, this is not guaranteed to work out, but I've got a fairly good chance I'm on the right thing here. Like I've got a friend who was talking about someone he met and he was like, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm in love with this person. And he was like, I know it's early to say this, but I'm like, no, 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 I know what you mean. A friend of mine, met, um, he met a partner in, um, they were both working in South America and he told me this. He told me like he, he thought he was in love with her the moment he met her. And I was like, dude, I know what you're talking about. You know yourself well enough to know what the shot feels like you've you've done that you've executed 
that enough times in an emotional sense you've met enough people and filtered enough people out and been discerning enough that by now you're like that person registers with me at the level that is correct and that's the reward for self-knowledge actually that's the reward for mastering your craft your friend gordon like congratulations to him but gordon's reward is doing the work it's doing the work to such an extent that the machinery becomes apparent and all of a sudden you're like you create from a place of comfort and excitement that's amazing that's amazing that, shout out to gordon yeah no, it's 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 super it's super exciting i was wondering sort of um i just sort of like to bring it back around again to because I, yeah, I suppose course. the only area that we haven't talked about well there's loads of areas we haven't yeah. talked about but an area that, that i suppose is part of what you do quite a lot um is also kind of like writing and you mentioned it briefly with sort of the urgency of so many of the issues that we're facing today is the kind of political side of it and i know you've kind of like made um you had a huge impact as an essayist and conveying kind of like important things that are important to you and are important for people to grasp um, in kind of essay form. And I wondered if you could just touch on the art of persuasive writing a bit, because it's not something I've really talked about with many writers on the show. And there's an art to it, obviously. And I wondered about how you tackle that you know is are you using quite a lot of the same tools that you're using in poetry in sports writing yeah. is it a different beast altogether um what, what kind of considerations when you're sitting down to write a uh, opinion-led essay how do you approach that do you know what I, I, first of all thank you because being in terms of being an essayist you never know what impact you're having so it's nice to know that like it's been received well um because you can never fully tell right uh what i would say is this um the principles are very similar. Opening line, same as a poem. So actually the principles of writing essays are the same as my principles of writing poems. And that sounds really pretentious, but it's actually exactly how I see it. So let me um, even give a better example, a concrete example. I wrote a piece about Nelson Mandela um, in December, 2013, the day that he um, died. And if you look, let's look, let's compare that piece, which people compared to poem uh, and we compare it to my football essay now, they both started with a strong opening line or an opening line that set the tone. So the football piece begins being immortal as hard work and the, um, the Mandela piece began with Nelson Mandela will never ever be your minstrel. Now I began with that line, what is that? Like a minstrel obviously is someone who performs for the benefit of a black or a white audience that's actually a racist white audience. And your minstrel, I'm, refer I'm talking to a particular, it's an open letter basically to a certain type of person who wants to take Mandela's legacy and completely whitewash it and not talk about the fact that actually a lot of people co-signed apartheid when he was alive. Same principle as a poem. An essay is just a long poem and a novel is just a longer poem. And I don't mean that in a glib way. What I mean is you go from A to B, you've got that fat in the middle, the, the, not the fat, you've got the guts in the middle of the work and you set the tone with the opening line. And here's the key thing with a political essay as well as a, um, the essay I'm writing now only say one thing this essay i'm writing now about football is about gods and immortality right it's about gods so just write about gods you're writing a political essay about immigration don't start writing about taxes write about immigration and then here's the crucial thing and the poetic training comes from that and the twitter and the poetry we're talking about the craft all of it helps give people language to describe and diagnose what they are seeing because if you diagnose a problem then you can deal with it that's the first stage so don't be didactic, but for example, 
um, I had a thing the other uh, a few years ago. I said the black reaction is on trial. What I meant was, when black people experience racism, it's often they who are called upon to comment on it and deal with it and mo and protest and march. But they don't ask nicely enough. People don't do anything. Oh, you're too aggressive. You're too this. You're too that. But I was like, this is perverse. If you drive a nail through someone's foot, you can't then criticize them for screaming at a certain pitch. You're like, why are you hammering nails with their foot? And so. That the phrase I used for that was the black reaction is in trial. Every time a black person does something, experiences racism, their reaction is then judged. So that is like one thing per 800 words, one point that you repeatedly, that, that you reiterate. So yeah, that, that's no different from a poem actually. Look at like, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, like the refrains or my opening um, a poem in this book. And then it's all about love. The opening question, what happened to the wind that sent the slave ships? That is actually a political essay, right? Uh, the second poem, Black Gravity, is a political essay. It's a poem. They're the same. They're the same thing. So I get very passionate about this, but it's literally like that's the philosophy. That's literally the philosophy of how I write. Like, yeah. I'm, no, I'm the reason I'm I'm listening with such uh, not 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 to be a, a lover or anything, but I'm just so it makes me so excited hearing you talk about this music because, you know, I. I feel like it's something that I often really struggle with. Uh, I think it might be an ang anxious thing as well, but I always want to step back and kind of be like, on the other hand, or step out, or, you know, like somebody writing a PhD where you teach yourself just enough to know that you don't know anything, and then you lose all confidence in what you're saying, because you and you start going... Uh, and, and, and I feel like... I mean, I love the essay that you did a few years back i think it was probably during the me too movement that was kind of really addressing it was almost kind of uh, addressing men and their Prospect. role in in yeah it, and their role in it and you were talking about a kind of uncomfortable conversation with where someone disclosed what they thought was a funny anecdote that was yes ultimately was quite yeah, yeah. disturbing um and I, and I thought and and it's but it's that ability to i think although you know that ability to hammer on something is what I'm always really um, impressed by is your ability to, sorry, that sounds patronizing. I don't mean it by that, but your ability no, to no, no, not, include not, nuance while getting to the point. I think that's an art, you know, the ability to admit. And I wonder, I just wonder if you could talk about how, how do you, how do you, you know, like, cause that's, I don't even know how, what I'm trying to articulate here, but like that, how do you do how do you do how, how do you do making, nuance because yeah. here's here's the conversation that is like coming up more and more at the moment right is people are going people don't listen to each other anymore we're kind of like getting more and more polarized but there is still clearly a need for good political right writing how do you navigate that do you think that the some of these calls are you know are they all are they not in good faith or how do you kind of like navigate those issues and that everyone's it's like everyone's human so you're like everyone is human and i even when i criticize poem um uh, politicians and i loathe what they're doing i don't wish ill upon them i just wish they weren't politicians <laughs> i don't wish ill i don't wish death on people i'm like i don't i just wish you weren't i wish i'd never heard of you i wish you were working you know consulting or property management or I, I i just i wish i didn't know anything about you i you know do your thing i wish you health but I wish you weren't employed doing I, this. I wish you're. In, this is why they're in, that their incompetence was like 
was like just being um it, it was it, safely quarantined was safely quarantined and yeah in a way that it couldn't harm millions of people and when you come at it from that perspective when you come at it from that point of when you take away that um the human element and the vindictive stuff it sharpens the scalpel actually it sharpens the scalpel and it say i'm not going to pat like i never patronize my opponent i'm like you don't like me i don't like you I have the honesty to articulate clearly what it is I dislike about what you are, are doing. You don't have the honesty to articulate that. So this is when I call it bad faith. You are ashamed. You don't call me. Everything in your conduct indicates you think this about me as a person, uh, as a black person, as a queer person, as a bisexual person. Like, you will not say it outright because you know actually that is not a way to recruit people to what you're doing. We both know what's going on here. So what I often do is I write and I critique and I go, listen, I did a piece about um, racism actually in uh, The Guardian. And the piece was basically about how the UK media does not take racism seriously. And I named names, I named specific examples. I named big publications, newspapers, individuals, no pushback, no pushback. And I was like, of course, because it's bad faith because they know what they're doing and they don't want to engage with me because they engage with me, the game is up, so they ignore it. And that happens a lot. There's a lot of times I've written stuff that's very sort of strident, that's very like, and I'm like, my gosh, they've got to come after me for this. And they don't. Because it's like, and I said to my friends, I went, I tore these, what are they? Ah, oh, they're not, I said, they don't want it. I said, they don't want it. Because it's almost like I've approached them in such a way that they're like, if we go after this dude, we expose ourselves, if that makes sense. So yeah, but that's kind of the that's kind of the um, the game of it, the positive of it. It's like navigating it, and they're like, oh, because that person humanized me. That person didn't, they didn't give anything that I could go, oh, he's, ah, oh, he's uh, he's attacking us personally. No, he's not. Like, and they, when you don't do that, all they're left defending is a bad faith argument, it, it, uh, and people don't want that. They don't it, want that problem. It's so, it, but it's fascinating that even then, do you feel a pressure that you have to put all this effort into going like? what's my strategy here how am i presenting myself because you, you t were talking there about the um like that it's like well you know are are you are you being too angry are you be and and, and it's still like oh, no, your I, I love it's it. like no, your responses on on do you feel even the, <laughs> that even you are still you know that your your response is on trial to the extent that you know that, that people can be sort of glibly sort of destroying lives or just sort of blithely bigoted and then even as a writer of kind of like political um opinion pieces you you're still having to kind of i, I don't know i just do do you, no, do you no, find I'm yourself second I'm, guessing I'm your response no i'm proud of it do you know why because they i don't want to use the tools that they're using to reshape the to try and help reshape the world Every piece that I write is written with the kind of nuance and care that I want to see in the world, right? That's what I want to see in the world. Um, so I won't go with those same weapons they come with because they don't have, I say this, it's my friends all the time, my family. Nobody has the right to reduce you to less than human, right? No one has the right to reduce you to a place, a state of barbarity. They don't have that right. They don't have the right to change you. If you want to become that, become that of your own will. You want to do that, go there, but don't let them change you in that sense. So they're not going to make me less um nuanced just because they come at me with some with some bullshit so the way that i write that the mandela piece is brutal but the way it is is strategically brutal it's absolutely brutal it's not a gentle piece but 
it's directed it says you you are doing this you are doing that it doesn't mention any names now here's the thing the only people that respond to that angrily are those who feel called out because they write to me they're like oh my god musa blah 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 i'm like, why do you feel attacked why do you feel attacked clearly it's not about you or unless you're feeling guilty and time and again people expose themselves very quick example i was on twitter a few years ago and i said anonymous trolls on twitter that send abuse to people must derive an almost erotic thrill from this and i said i imagine these anonymous trolls sitting in the dark naked with electrodes attached to their parts stimulated with joy when they get an angry reply from someone they've sent a death threat to the flood of response <laughs> from an from anonymous trolls going, no, 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 we don't. And I'm like, oh, how interesting. Look, who's feel, <laughs> look who feels summoned. That's such a great trap. <laughs> <laughs> you can't troll a troll. <laughs> 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 I, like, I said, I, I grew up with over 40 first cousins. I've got a massive family. I've seen every trick a child has pulled. You cannot troll a troll. <laughs> That's awesome. How, and, and, and I wonder if, um, had there ever been... I, I wonder if you've ever been not as a kind of like aggressive troll on something, but I wonder if you've ever experienced that from the other side, I, just sort of as a way of closing this off. I, I wonder if there's ever been yeah. a point where you've read an opinion piece or a great piece of political writing where your f initial, because I know I've had this experience, your initial reaction is kind of like, how very dare you? And then there's a little cooling off period and then you go, oh, oh I read a load of maybe. stuff. Yeah, well, I read a load of things. I read a lot less conservatives than I used. I used to read a range of political um, opinion, but unfortunately, I've got to say, um, so much of the conservative writings are no longer rooted in fact, unfortunately, or humanity. And that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but I read, I, you know, I was someone that used to read a lot of Telegraph stuff, Julian Glover in the Times, Matthew Paris, but at each point in the last few years, these are writers I've read for like many, many years, they've departed from, I would say, the track of of like a common humanity. And this is disappointing, but I still read a wide range of things to the point where, I mean, like for example, Gerard Baker in the Times, I used to read all the time. And then Gerard Baker wrote that abortion was worse than slavery. And I was like, he actually wrote this. He's now, I think the editor, he's at the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal. I think he's still there. Um, you know, so I read a, a wide range of opinion, um, yeah, including and sometimes even particularly people who I disagree with, because that gives me the nuance. It gives me the nuance. It keeps me sharp. It keeps me like agile. It keeps me like, you know, I'm not surprised by stuff. I used to read a lot of like, you know, Jane's Defense Weekly. I'm not, I'm pretty much a pacifist. But I would read this monthly military digest because I want to be aware of what's happening. I read my foreign policy stuff. I'm a real uh, news junkie. So yeah, I, I kind of read everything, I guess. Yeah. I, and I, I that, that's, that's all. I just, to kind of like finish off, I was wondering if I could yeah, just sure. ask about, um, I, I just I, I just would be really this is just me being sort of brazenly just wanting your opinion on this because you often whenever I've heard you <laughs> you're just one of those people who I sort of shamelessly um, steal your opinions as my own really like often you just <laughs> kind of like <laughs> nail something and I go I, yeah I guess that is what I think now actually <laughs> maybe, you, maybe, maybe maybe this is all your kind of guile your ability to make things Ince sound inception. great that I'll be like, oh, yeah but I, I, I just wondered especially i i guess with football it's been not notable like that we're in this pandemic now um and you know there's no crowds anywhere are in fact every area that we've been talking about has been affected by this 
Um, yes. Football is like we've got empty stadiums. The performance poetry scene that we used to be a part yeah. of is yeah, of course, is, of course. Is, is vanished. Um, the That's cities that we yeah. you've been we've been talking about are kind of like in many places empty, and politics has you know there's no part of politics that isn't touched by the pandemic at the moment. And I just wonder how you see this situation as having you know where you sit where you, where you see us kind of like emerging from this i'm not asking you to make kind of epidemiological no, predictions no, so I much as sociological this, ones i think about this all the time it makes me nervous tim because you know what there's the first thing i would say is everyone's talking about return to normal tim what if the normal's not coming back what if we're not going to have packed venues for the next three years it's quite plausible that we won't have a packed venue in certain places for the next three years it's very possible we won't have that right and also, what's this going to do to interpersonal relationships? Because what's been happening, I've noticed in the pandemic, and I've not been immune from experiencing this, not so much inflicting it, but from experiencing it. Being in isolation this long is a bit, it's almost, it's foreshadowing what space travel will be like. I don't know why we're so obsessed with colonizing other planets, because it means traveling vast distances in isolation, just like we are now. This is what space travel will be like, where every disagreement, every agreement is more intense than it should be. Everything's more vigorous. Online, the, 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 the debates are more vigorous. They go on for longer because people are trapped at home. People focus on, on targets because they're at home. Arguments. Um, but people are falling out over the most minor. I probably like, you know, not fallen out with, but had chilled relations with people out of nowhere. People have just flared up where it's just been like, this doesn't happen if we're not all stuck at home. It doesn't happen. I think the kind of, there's going to be a kind of trauma this mental health aspect of the abandonment, right? People have been quietly abandoned. For example, today, you're the person I've spoken to the longest. This has been a lovely conversation, but if it wasn't a positive interaction, I would then turn this off and go back to work, and this would be my only adult interaction pretty much of the day. That's really scary, actually, because then, for example, even in the pandemic, uh, in the first lockdown, a friend of mine cancelled on me twice. He cancelled a Zoom chat twice in two days. And she was the only person I was going to speak to on both days. So she left me without human contact for 48 hours. This is the thing. The time, and this is the problem. The legacy of the, um, the lockdown as we emerge from it will be that kind of, it's been very brutal with us. It's been very brutal with us emotionally in ways that we can't quantify. And I know that's a bit of a cop-out argument, but I think it, it cuts across everything. And the, the fear that I'm gonna, I have when we re-emerge from this is that people will almost do what they did in the 1920s after Spanish flu. They got on top of Spanish flu and they went out and people basically went and there was like all this reckless abandon and people went a bit OTT. So I think my instinct has got to be almost to pull back from that. That first wave, if you like, of hedonism, which is gonna come after the first wave of vaccines. Like, I'm gonna sort of step back from that first wave because you're gonna get people behaving in a really reckless way. You might get more accidents, people going abroad, living as if they've got nothing to live for. The beaches are going to be crammed. The airports are going to be a nightmare. There's going to be, you know, this, you're going to see people, people are going to be living as if they just recovered from stage four cancer. And that, we have to be prepared for that. That sounds really dramatic. And I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just saying that it's a natural human reaction to overcompensate for what they feel the lost years. Because there'll be a lot of people running around going, I've lost two years of my life. I need to get it back. And that might lead to, in the short term, I suppose quite selfish is harsh, but self-interested behavior where people are like, you know, it's going to be a sort of spiritual equivalent of people running into, um, it's going to be the spiritual equivalent of finding an oasis in a desert for a lot of people. 
And we've got to be ready in the next two years for a lot of abnormal patterns of behavior based on this long-term deprivation we've been feeling. So yeah, that's one prediction, but yeah. Yeah, be really, really, yeah. I, 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 I feel that completely. I, I spoke recently to Adrian James, who's the um, head of the uh, Royal College of Psychiatrists in the UK. And he's oh very goodness. much like uh, feeling that the, although there's a big impact now, that when we look at the First World War and the Second World Wars, the big psychological impact didn't come during them, but after them. That the, yes. the effects, people often, we've, we're actually humans are quite well wired for short-term resilience through in extremis, uh, but it's kind of like those moments, it's like the long-term, it's like when you try to then take this kind of coping strategy and cope it's like when you get basically a demobbed soldier right you go back to the real world yes. and all the survival tactics you've learned are not adaptive in not at all. everyday life apocalypse now apocalypse now got to get back to the jungle he, he's in his hotel room just spinning out because he can't handle the mundane nature of it you come back you're not a hero there's no intensity day to day you know now comes living now comes the hard part this is the thing and you know, when we emerge from this, it'll be like, now comes living. And now the thing is, this has revealed so many myths about the way we lived before, about the need for certain forms of travel, certain forms of working from a home. Like all these things have been renegotiated. It's renegotiated like a lot of people's relationships for them on the fly. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, goodness me, raising children in this pandemic, especially as a single parent, I mean, all of this, well, in some cases, it's well, depending on the partner. It's, but, you know, my goodness, the things that, you know, couples and families have been um, subjected to unnatural burdens. So have single people, I'm not to like, and my mental health going into this pandemic was good. I had excellent coping strategies, I'm good. But if I was in my first year at uni going into this, where things weren't so good, wow, I mean, and this pandemic we've seen, it's been absolutely brutal. If we say as a closing note, this pandemic has been absolutely brutal to people. I don't want to make light of that in the course of this, we haven't discussed that, but we are in a pandemic as we record this and I want to just like say that I recognize the horror that people are being subjected in this pandemic it's not dealing with us fairly there are some people it's taken their their parents taken their sisters taken their it's been there are some people who it feels like it's chosen one person out of 20 in a social group and it's attacked them exclusively and everyone else has got on just fine. They're writing their books like me. They're doing their podcasts. They're doing this and that. Or they're living in New Zealand. They haven't changed anything. And there are some people with this, pod, this, this pandemic has rained on them exclusively. And that has been so cruel. The isolation within the isolation has been horrifying. So yeah, I just want to say my, my love and sympathy to everyone who's experienced that. Because I know that listeners to this will have been the person the pandemic has picked on. And I'm so sorry that that has been you. Musa, thanks so much for talking to me today. I, I <laughs> that maybe came out as a little bit more kind of. It's a pleasure. Uh, no, it's a, no, this is a joy. It's really man. nice to be joy. able to, and it's lovely to chat to you after all all this time and just say hello. It's lovely to have an excuse to talk to people that I want to have an excuse to talk to who I love talking to. Honestly, man, I got the invite from you. I was like, honestly, that was just a straight. That was a straight yes. <laughs> yeah. so I was like, this is a straight yes, man. Like the way you've always conducted yourself like the ukulele stuff is hilarious the comedy but the writing man all of it is just but the way you're generous you're generous you don't just there's a lot of people who can write just as well as you who wouldn't give as much of themselves as you do you really give of yourself and like you've created a community and it's to be honest it is actually i know that i joke about this the book is all about love but 
it's really community, right? What's going to get us through all of this? And I say this a thousand times that so many do. This pandemic is just basically, it's foreshadowing. It's a trailer for climate change. The community we build now is the community we're going to need later. And you're one of those people, man. You, you do that. And so I want to say primarily like as a human being, my respect for you is huge. As an artist, as a community builder, like it's absolute. So yeah, much love. I'm uh, very thanks. grateful for this. Thanks, Musa. Same back at you. If people want to um, find you and your work online, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, well, uh, obviously for this book, I've got to plug it. So roughtradebooks.com uh, for my book. In the end, it was all about love. Uh, and for my work, if you're on Twitter or Instagram, uh, my surname, just O-K-W-O-N, and for no G-A, O-K-W-O-N-G-A. So yeah, find me there. There's always something popping up. And I've got like a football podcast, but I'll tweet about that. It's called Stadio. Hopefully you like it, but yeah. Awesome. I'll no put links to all of those things in the um, show notes of today's episode. In the, sh in the show notes. I've always wanted in the show notes. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I said it before I really knew <laughs> what I meant. And I like, would often say in the show notes and, and, and start pointing downwards as if, as if I was on, as if I was on YouTube, YouTube. Yeah. I'd start pointing <laughs> downwards as if they could see me pointing towards some imaginary show notes. But again, that's just, it's like you, like you said, that's what my hands do. They're always kind of like locating oh. stuff in space. Um, and everybody listening to the show, thank you very much for tuning in. And I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.